You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommying While Muslim Podcast. This is Uzma Jaffrey. And this is Zeba Hassan. I feel like it's been a very long time since we've seen each other because I've been MIA the last couple of um, episodes. I feel so badly about that. You've been holding your own, girl, holding your own. Yeah, well, we got to, you know, let each other fly and you are going high and doing amazing and great things. So I'm just happy to hold down the fort until you come back. I'm just happy that you came back. Please. I know she's like, like, you're coming back, right? I'm like, never going away. Never. You're stuck with me. Yeah. Okay, good. Alhamdulillah. That's awesome. How's your week been? You know, I was just um, telling you before we started talking, it's been one of those crazy weeks. I feel like everything goes well until it doesn't. And then when it doesn't, it's always one thing after the next, after the next, after the next. Um, So, but you know what? You have to kind of like take each day as it comes, deal with it in stride and do the best that we can do, right? Because Mm -hmm. to, to get caught up in it, to feel overwhelmed, really doesn't help the situation. So... I am trying to be super zen, courtesy of my 4 a.m. morning meditation, yoga, and prayer practice, which I highly recommend to everybody um, because it's making me deal with all the crazy angst of my kiddos, and there's always a lot of them, Um, and I am so excited. You've already beat me to this, but my younger two getting their COVID vaccine today. So I am very, very excited about that. But, you know, I know you've had a kind of a crazy week as well. So why don't you tell me about your week? You know, I anticipated it being crazy. And maybe, um, you know, I was maybe that's why it wasn't. Maybe that's why it wasn't. Yeah, alhamdulillah. Because my husband went out of town um, for about five, six days, five days. And alhamdulillah, everything got managed, you know, even though I needed to be at two different places at once. Much of the time, my sister picked up for me over the weekend, which was awesome. And took my boys to the soccer game. And, you know, moms were coming up to her and being like, hey, how come you're not screaming today? And she's like, wait a second. I may look like a twin. How much do you scream? (laughs) How much do you scream that that's what you're known for? And I'm like, dude, I'm the cheering section (laughs) for the soccer team. You have to. Yeah, I have to. Who else can say goal for like one minute? Me. Yeah, you can. You can. I can almost she do it for the 90 lungs, seconds. Everybody. I've got the lungs, the lungs for it. So yeah, absolutely. You ready for our soapbox? I am so excited about our soapbox, especially about this particular case you're going to be talking about. So take <laughs> it away. So we all know about the FBI surveillance program that has been ongoing and is a measure of the counterviolence and extremism that um, that particular committee that was started post 9-11 in the United States so that we could um, kind of preemptively uh, prevent any terror attacks, domestic terror attacks, which... Um, I don't know, considering all the shootings we've had in America since 9-11 that weren't committed by Muslims, uh, I would say that CVE is pretty much a failure. And in fact, the FBI would say it too, but they can't because since 2011, there's been a civil suit against the FBI. So basically, um, Imam Yasser Fazika, who used to be the imam out in Orange County, um, and, you know, established good relationships, he thought, with the FBI, as many of us who have worked with our masajid board have invited the FBI, have invited local police into our masjids and been like, hey, we actually need protection against hate crimes. We actually want to have a good relationship with you. Whereas they were coming in and saying, well, if you see something, say something. And it's like, dude, could you maybe do the same thing? Which didn't happen. So um, hands did not clap um, both ways in this situation. So basically in 2012, the lower courts uh, throughout the case Fuzzica versus FBI, because what the FBI is arguing is state secrets, in quotes, because of state secrets, they cannot reveal what they actually did, what actually transpired, meaning did they or did they not pay informants to actually feed um, the people that they that they eventually entrapped um, or that they eventually arrested um, because obviously Imam Fazika and the two other plaintiffs with him uh, are trying to prove that there was Muslim entrapment that happened. And you can't do that when the FBI is blocking you 
by saying, oh, well, we can't give that information. We can neither confirm nor deny because of state secrets. So that headed to the Supreme Court on Monday, and we are waiting to see what they're going to say. There was a bunch of Muslims that went to D.C. outside of the court to protest and show that, hey, you need to unlock this. Enough is enough. We've gone through three administrations now with this garbage. It's time to reveal the truth. I don't know if that's going to happen without a lot of pressure from our community, not on the Supreme Court because they're supposed to remain impartial, but on the FBI and send your local bureaus, um, you know, letters and say, hey, this is not cool, man. Like if you've got dudes like, you know, fronting in our masjid still like cut it out because we're coming after you. Local police, if you're fronting in our masjid and like posing and trying to entrap our boys, because it's usually young men that they entrapped, right? If you're trying to do that, mm-hmm. we are coming after you and shutting your department down. You already know that we want to defund police and close your police stations. Like, don't give us more fodder. We're already really pissed mamas. So um, that's our soapbox for today. Thank you so much, always, Ozma, for kind of keeping it real and keeping me in the know. Um, but we're going to get started on whether or not we're going to call this uh, our series Latina Muslima or Latin Muslima because both Arabic and Spanish have masculine and feminine pronouns and nouns and we really aren't quite sure of how the noun ejective agreement is here so we're just going to ask our guests and follow their leads in any case we had many new listeners let us know that they appreciated the montage for a gazillion and one reasons not the least of which is go figure the common theme of sex and sexuality that they had shared with us. I can't believe that this still surprises me, but there we are glad we could serve and inshallah Allah Allah will let us recruit more listeners. And we now know what to do for our February series. That is for sure. So first up is this amazing, beautiful woman that we were able to meet. She's one of our, our fans and one of our listeners. Her name is Ava. Um, Ocasia, and she's a certified nurse midwife and IBCLC and has an MPH from Columbia University. That's a master's in public health, FYI. She has worked in maternal child health research, which, you know, is music to Uzma's ears because she loves, she loves that particular um, area of expertise. Her work allows her to create hospital policies that better serve moms and babies, particularly with women of color. While there, she decided she wanted to pursue some more degrees because, you know, there wasn't enough letters behind her name. And she decided to get her second BSN in nursing so that she can go on and get her master's and nurse midwifery. I mean, I am just exhausted reading all of that, mashallah. But before I welcome Ava, I wanted to give a little bit of a shout out. I have to leave and bow out a little bit early because I'm getting my younger two their COVID vaccinations. I'm super excited. But welcome, Ava, and thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullah, ladies. Thank you so much. I'm honored. As you guys know, I'm a big fan. I've been listening for a while now, um, and I've just gotten a bigger fan with, you know, the way that you guys have chosen to amplify a lot of minority voices. And so here you are doing it again. Alhamdulillah. It just really like totally made our day, like, you know, made our week, actually. So we really appreciate it. And, you know, I'm just I'm so excited, especially, you know, after that bio, it's like, wow, we have listeners who are really smart. (laughs) (laughs) They don't think we we're not. No, (laughs) not amazing. Really, you know, like I said, I've enjoyed the podcast. I'm a podcast while I work person. I podcast while I wash dishes. I podcast while I clean. I podcast while I drive. And so, you know, you guys have been on on my chores with me for the past months. <laughs> Wonderful. I love washing dishes with friends. So, Ava, we usually kick off, as you know, by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about their mommying story, whatever they're comfortable sharing and their mommying philosophy. Sure. So um, I've got three uh, daughters um, that I birthed. I also um, breastfed two of my daughter's kids. So the, I count those towards my kids, you know, Islamically, they count. So <laughs> um, two that Mashallah. I did not birth, but three daughters that I'm raising um, ages nine, six and three. So we all know what happens around the three year mark for me. And this year it didn't happen because my kid's three, I'm not pregnant. So <laughs> somehow I was spared. Ooh, it's hutch time. <laughs> um, and yeah, so, you know, a little bit about my mommy and philosophy. I think, you know, the 
I was raised in a beautiful home, um, in a, in a non-Muslim home. I became Muslim, um, 18 years ago. And so, uh, there's a lot that I have taken from my parents because I had a very beautiful upbringing and there's a lot that I'm sort of making up on my own, um, as I try to adapt the beauties from Islam and the beauties from, um, you know, my different cultures and, um, and then an immigrant and, and taking, you know, the good that this country has to offer as well. And this, this environment has to offer. Um, I approach my parenting with, um, the golden rule. I find like that has helped me more than anything in, um, my approach to the kids treat them how I want to be treated. And a lot of times it, you know, I'm good at it. And a lot of times I'm not. And then when I come in back and reflect, I say, geez, I wouldn't have wanted someone to talk to me like that or treat me like that if I would have made that same mistake. So I find that um, that has been for me, you know, parenting has been like the ultimate um, uh, exam in self-reflection. Like I've never questioned myself more <laughs> as a parent than any other part of my <laughs> life. I mean, I've done a lot of stuff. I've experimented, as you can see, with a bunch of degrees and careers and all of that. And still, I have never questioned myself and engaged in as much reflection as I have been as a parent. Um, and so, um, again, using that golden rule for me has been sort of my mainstay um, in how I approach raising the children. I absolutely love that. It's such a respectful way, if you think about it, to think of the golden rule, like, would I want to be treated the way I'm treating my kids right now? Um, and so I, I know that my daughter is really good about throwing that in my face. Like, how would you like it if I did that to you? Like, that's how I get that 10-year-old sass. It's a lot of fun. So you don't have any 10-year-olds yet. She's Just nine. Wait. I feel it's like coming. she's already 10, like nine and a half, nine, three quarters. She reminds yeah. me. I mean, I'm there with you. <laughs> what you have um, said, Eva, I think it um, it exemplifies kind of the prophetic model of raising children because the children around the Prophet Sallallahu were not abused. They all had agency. Um, they all got to learn at his feet in a loving manner, in a very respectful, thoughtful manner. And... I always say that if we are questioning ourselves, that is the humble position that we want to begin with. We don't ever want to say that we're so knowledgeable about anything, regardless of the alphabet soup associated with our names. We still don't know like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of all the wealth of knowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created. So um, it's a great place, um, parenting, to learn Absolutely. humility because that's where, yeah, I was a short, very sure very confident person until I had kids. And then I was like, why don't I know what I'm doing? Why don't I know what I'm doing? And everybody else Absolutely. does. So you touched a little bit um, on your intro about um, the your cultural background and your immigration story, that family history, um, whatever you're comfortable sharing with us. Could you let us know sure, what that absolutely. is? Absolutely. So I am um, Mexican born. I was born in the state of Michoacan in the world capital of Aguacates, uh, the city of Uruapan. And um, my father is Haitian and he immigrated to Mexico. He fled persecution in Haiti at the height of the Papadoc Um Regime, uh, if if anyone is familiar with that, and if our listeners are not, I say you know go <laughs> go learn up on it. And so he fled. He, he you know he fled Haiti out of um, fear of persecution. Actually, I mean he was on the hit list. He was many of his friends were killed, and he was up next. Oh. And so he traveled around the world, and eventually became settled in Mexico in pursuit of his um, goal to become a doctor. He met my mom there, and they hit it off. And I was born there. We came to this country when I was. Uh, three or four. And I've lived my life here between here and Mexico, um, you know, spending my summers there, my entire family on my mother's side is there. We're the only ones here. So I have a very strong I, um, Mexican identity. And I am um, re because my father left Haiti in, um, in a state of persecution, he didn't re-embrace his Haitian uh, culture until very recently, because, you know, for a long time, he he was afraid and he was, he hated hate, not hated Haiti. He loved his culture always, but he associated Haiti with a lot of trauma. And so now I am like trying to learn Haitian Creole. And even though I know it and I can understand if someone's talking about me, <laughs> so don't talk about me in Haitian Creole because you'll get in trouble. <laughs> 
Um, and so that, you know, uh, I, we immigrated here and um, this is where I've been. I'm, and by here, I mean, I'm in unceded Lenape territory, also known as New York City. And that's is, this is where I went to school and this is where I, you know, was raised for the most part. This is where my, my, my now community is. Uh, my sister also embraced Islam, alhamdulillah. So we're both Muslim. Our, our parents are not Muslim, um, but super supportive and kind and caring. Um, I, you know, and I have to say that my sister also nursed two of my children um, because we happen to get pregnant at the same time and uh yeah in islam um you know when you breastfeed another person's child uh you become uh tied by kinship essentially to that child and so that child cannot um marry your biological children because they're considered brother and sister um and uh you become like a mother to that child in the event that you know something should happen to the mother um I always loved this about lactation. When I was uh, studying lactation, we learned that when uh, inside of a person's uh, breast milk are the DNA and biological markers that can actually turn on and turn off genes in the person who's receiving the breast milk. So by giving your breast milk to someone, to a baby, to you know, a, a toddler, what have you, and they're ingesting that breast milk, it, it actually changes the way their genes are expressed almost akin to if you had donated your genes to them, like as a biological child. And this is just the wisdom of Allah. Like this is something that we learned in when I was studying lactation. And this is something that was re- very reaffirming um, for me as a person who, you know, had embraced this faith that clearly, you know, we can affect how, you know, uh, how the health um, evolves in the person that we breastfed and essentially become like their mother biologically. Yeah. Subhanallah, this beautiful. I had a milk son too, and sadly, um, he passed a couple of years ago. But it's um, not just genetic activation, deactivation that's happening. There's immunity that you are passing on, and you can trace those proteins from the mother to the baby. And whether it's birth mother or milk mother, it's just the most beautiful, beautiful um, exchange that can happen. And in Islam, it's it's really, really sacred. And it does create like a mother-child relationship. So even the prophet, peace be upon him, was um, very uh, committed to his milk mother, who lived to be a very old woman. His own biological mother had passed when he was a child. But, you know, he uh, continued to honor um, his milk mother for years and years and years. So the milk mother status is also super duper important. I think in English, it's nursemaids. But in Islam, she's your milk mother. Um, so... We don't like the word nursemaid because in Islam, if the husband and wife agree, milk mother is what it is, but if um, the husband and wife agree that the child will not be breastfed by the birth mother, then the father has to pay a milk mother. Like the milk mother does not give her milk for free unless like, you know, your sister is like Ava and her sister and they just they decided to do, you know, a non financial well, transaction sometimes i made her cook me dinner me baby, she you mine. from the fridge oh yeah there you go you did perfect there was an arrangement there <laughs> love it love it that's awesome you cook dinner i've got two i can handle this you know one on each tandem is great right yeah so in islam the milk mother must Absolutely. be paid um especially if it's not an arrangement like ava has so there's no such thing as forcing a mother to give up her agency, her autonomy over her body, and the sacred bodily fluid that she has that has so many like genetic and immunologic and emotional, spiritual um, pieces to it. So I think that that's that's a beautiful part of our religion. It's one of my favorite reasons for breastfeeding. In this country, enslaved people were forced to breastfeed, enslaved Africans were forced to breastfeed um, the slave owners' um, children because... You know, the slave women just didn't feel like doing it. Like they didn't feel like working like any like every other part of their at the expense of their own infants. So thanks yeah. for mentioning that. Mm-hmm. Um, we are a Spanish speaking household. My husband is Puerto Rican um, and he's well, New Yorican. He was born here. And um, so as a political act, I I taught my children Spanish and we speak Spanish at home. We watch TV at home Our bo- in Spanish. Our books are in Spanish. Our play is in Spanish. And, you know, just, I don't know, two, three days ago, my, my daughter and my nine-year-old translated uh, a contract for my husband, for her dad. 
uh, into, into Spanish because the contractor was uh, Spanish speaking. And so even though sometimes she kind of rolls her eyes at me like, oh, Spanish is not cool. Ma. You know, like English is what, ha- you know, in Spanish, of course, English is, you know, where all the TV, you know, the, the slang is better, blah, blah, blah. And I said, look, you just made yourself some money because um, I gave you this free skill. <laughs> so, so you know, uh, Spanish is important. Um, we, my, you know, my father has, uh, like I said, re-embraced um, Haiti to the point where he built a hospital in Haiti and um, is very, you know, active in his community and beloved by his community. All of the people who were a part of, and by the way, were puppets of colonialist um, America, but, you know, and those were the ones behind um, the of terror, course, not yeah. necessarily the Haitian people. Um, but we, you know, my, my children are also can be white passing, um, because my husband is light skin, although one of my child is, is black. When, and even though we, you know, we're, that's Latinos, right? We're all mixed up. And so you never know what you're going to get. They don't even look like each other. We talk a lot about colonialism from a very young age. Um, we are very anti-racist home. Um, we are very open about, you know, what it is to me to be in this country, to have a black mother and what kind of privilege you carry as a, a, a white or, you know, maybe like a racially ambiguous child. Um, what privilege do you carry and what, what you know, um, what your responsibilities are because of that privilege um, at a very young age. And so... You know, this is something that children can understand if you are, you know, conscious about their developmental, um, you know, where they are developmentally, they'll understand. And you can teach these lessons, you can teach these hard lessons um, in a way that is meaningful, in a way that gives them responsibility and ownership over where their privileges are. Um, And then in a way that, again, allows them to love the parts that there are to love. Because, you know, Islam says, take the good and leave the bad. And, you know, what better way to do it than by being open and honest in how you raise them? I'm having some FOMO about not being mixed race, y'all. <laughs> we'll adopt you, Esma. It's like, I know. It's like I can teach my kids uh, about colonialism. I thought I I thought I had an in, but it's like I'm feeling a little left out here. I'll give you some breast milk. I'm, I'm not breastfeeding anymore. Someone give Esma some breast milk so she could be mixed race. <laughs> I still have some breast milk. I still have some breast milk wow. in my freezer I'm saving to make some jewelry. jewelry. Oh, I love yeah. it. Because you know what? It's got DNA yes. in it. And so, God forbid, in the future, if we need to clone <laughs> one of the kids. Esma. Or me. Or me. It's available. I did not think of it's it. It's right there. They'll be wearing it around their neck. So um, we're going to have in our show notes, Ava, a bunch of resources for people who like numbers okay. like me to figure out, you know, why is there so much racial disparity? Because maternal child health is really important to you. It's really important to me. It should be important to everybody who's listening here and definitely to the people who aren't. Um in reading all this information about the racial and ethnic disparities that happen in birthing and even the criminalization mm. of birth that happens to people of color, but oh, not yeah. to white people, um, where where do Afro-Latinas fall in the statistics? Because they have African-American, they have Hispanic Latin, but then they're forgetting that there's Afro-Latinas. So I'm like, well, where do where are they and where what do the numbers say about mm. them? Um, so I'm going to pose that to you first. Yeah, you know, research on the the actual population of Afro-Latinas is almost non-existent. And the reason it's non-existent is because, you know, research is as good as the questions you are asking. And no one is asking specifically about this community. The way that, at least in New York City and maybe in other places as well, um, the way that the, the, the um, public health data is compiled, we ask about ethnicity um, in our vital statistics. Um, and then uh, we will first ask uh, non-Hispanic or Hispanic. And then if you're non-Hispanic, then we ask about race, which we know is socially constructed, but at this point um, is, uh, you know, when we're collecting data is necessary. And so then you can then identify as white, black, you know, Asian Pacific Islander, or, you know, and and there you have your racial breakdowns. And so um, we actually, if we wanted to cut the data to just look at Afro-Latinas, in New York City, we could do that because we could look at uh, Latinas or Hispanics, uh, black or versus Latina, white. However, as far as the data is concerned, when we look at Latinos in this country um, and health statistics, it's really interesting. There is um, a thing called the Hispanic paradox. And really what that points to is that the the Latin American community in this country across so many health outcomes, when we talk about cardiovascular disease, maternal child health, breastfeeding rates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they do way better than their white counterparts. 
um, with way, which w- with way less resources, with um, much poorer socioeconomic status, with you know much you know a poorer just circumstances altogether, including recent immigration status. And so, um, what 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 researchers are thinking, you know, because we don't really have an answer. How does this Latino population do better? How are they healthier than whites with a lot less resources? And whites have a lot, you know, more resources, and they have you know privilege and money. What they're thinking is two things. First of all, they have the community. Um, And that community, specifically when we're looking at maternal child health, when we look at breastfeeding rates for Latinas, Mm -hmm. when we look at postpartum depression, they are significantly lower um, than white counterparts and then, uh, you know, drastically lower than their black counterparts who who are at the, you know, the helm of the injustice. They're very high risk. And yeah. um, when we mm-hmm. look at things like breastfeeding rates, we are, are significantly higher than their white counterparts. And um, what they're thinking is that the, the, the existence of that community makes a big difference. And I mean, the stuff we know, right, it's stuff that those of us in the maternal child health field have been screaming for years, you need your community, you need, you know, in order to raise a healthy family. The other thing they're thinking is uh, acculturation. So the level of acculturation, how longer you've been in this country, or to the degree, even if you've been here for a short time, how quickly you've assimilated to the um, American society and American culture actually has a negative impact on your health outcomes. Um, as evidenced by breastfeeding rates and as evidenced by postpartum depression, even things like maternal mortality. And so um, the Latin American community is uh, very special in that way and, and, you know, is a good example of why things like, you know, non-health related related, um, interventions, like just having a support system um, and, you know, social support um, can have really positive uh, outcomes for or impacts on, on health. And we think that, you know, we just have to go, you know, give medicines to everyone or intervene medically and we can make change. But really, the things that are most impactful have nothing to do with pharmacology, with medicines and with inter- medical interventions. The reason I'm kind of honing in on, you know, where do they fall? Where do Afro-Latinas fall under African-American or under Latin? And it depends, again, like you said, it depends on who's doing the research and where the research is being done. So outside of New York, I feel like that population is yeah. screwed. And it matters, it matters because where are, and I, I do have to go back to our intro intro, Latina Muslima or Latin Muslima? I like Latina because I, I'm extra feminine. I'm going to do Latina Muslima because <laughs> that, I like the sound Latina of that. Latina Muslima because I feel like they will, have to agree. Will, yeah. They have to agree. Latin is, Latin is non-binary. <laughs> so, you know, in English, it's non-binary. So you're fine doing it if we're saying, you know, if we're speaking in English. If we're speaking, if we're speaking in Spanish, English. you would yeah. say Latina Muslima. So both are right. So then we'll just call it Latina Muslima because I don't want to speak in English because we do that every day. But if you're going to... think for November, you know, we should speak Spanish. Ah, let's do it. <laughs> and I think that that's important for our audience members to know that um, just because you're Latina doesn't mean you only speak Spanish because there are non-Spanish speaking Latinas right. as right. well. And what's what I learned recently from author Wendy Diaz, uh, the author of Hablamos Español, is uh, that his, the word Hispanic is not used because it has direct ties to colonialism. And the European colonists who came and took over indigenous peoples and, um, you know, named it Hispaniola and all of that because they were, a lot of them were Spanish speaking. So we don't say Hispanic if we can help it. We say uh, Latino, Latina, um, or if you're speaking English, Mm -hmm. Latin, um, because remember French, uh, Spanish, and German and English are your Latin languages so and portuguese thank you when we were looking at data when we switched in new york city at least um because that's where you know i've I've studied research um health research data when they switched from using hispanic um to latin american one of the main reasons was because it it excluded brazil completely when you said hispanic because hispanic is Mm spanish-speaking countries in brazil the the main language um the official language is portuguese and so an entire population was not included in the statistics for um a group of people that are not a monolith i do want to say that like latin americans are not a monolith and we are very very diverse but in so many ways we are also you know um very similar and it excluded the population which was you know very culturally similar to the rest of Latin America and also geographically like (laughs) on the same place. So um, in talking about the racial disparities, the ethnic disparities that occur, um, it's important to know where people are, how they're labeled, because then that's how we can track outcomes, all health outcomes, whether it's birth or cardiovascular or diabetic and stuff. So that's why in research, I think it's really important that as people 
asking questions that we we are looking at our subjects uh, appropriately and asking them what do you, what are your identifiers right. um, and that's super duper important rather than placing the labels on them that has historically been done uh, by researchers and you know that completely skews all the numbers and everything that we learn and then if we don't know the outcomes then we don't know what treatments and what preventive right. programs that there should be and so this can hurt entire communities and it matters to us because there are there is a growing population of Latin Muslims. And so regardless of where they are in the world, we want to make sure that they are fairly and justly counted. Um, So given that, um, and your interest in birth work, it, you know, it just seems like there was a perfect storm of bringing even your husband with his background into your life. Tell the audience how birth work is social justice work, because um, that may be lost on a lot of us who grow up with uh, us. a large degree of privilege. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, in this country, um, the status quo of birth, where, you know, the majority of people are giving birth in a hospital, um, which has been named the medical industrial complex for many reasons, one of which is that it, it, it is for profit and um, benefits the people who have the money and want to keep the money. And most of the time, it's rich white men. Um, mm-hmm. It does so at the cost of the oppressing um, everyone else. And more significantly, and um, at a higher rate, Black Americans and then other um, people of color. It could be, you know, uh, depending on what health statistic you're looking at, you know, Latinos soon after or Asian Americans or what have you. Um, And so Birthwick specifically is social justice because when people go into the hospital to give birth in this country, there's a lot of oppression that occurs. Um, in fact, mm-hmm. the, the oppression is widespread and the status quo. When we're talking about um, oppression, you know, we're talking about not, and, and on top of oppression, we're, we're looking at harm, um, harm being done. So we have emotional harm. We have a lot of trauma that is happening in the hospitals. People are leaving uh, the hospital after giving birth with a severe PTSD, um, with, um, all kinds of diagnoses that they did not have when they entered the hospital, and it's because um, trauma is widespread in the hospital. People are being, um, their rights are being taken away, they're being taken advantage of in the most intimate, you know, part and time of their life. They're not being listened to. Um, and then when we look at the cesarean rates in this country, um, which are obscenely high, double than what the World Health Organization recommends of 15%. Here in New York City, we have some hospitals hovering past 40% cesarean rates. Um, wow. Then we're looking at real um, real damage being done um, to communities and to, and, to, and to people who are giving birth. Um, midwifery at its heart is based on, at least in this country, is based on the man, granny midwives. So the midwives who were, um, who basically caught all the babies in this country, both enslaved people and slave owners. Um, and these were the midwives that were brought over from Africa, enslaved. Um, they had the, the training and the wisdom of midwifery work, of um, birth work, and they handed it down um, generation after generation they were the ones that caught the babies of the slave owners safely, and and they were valuable to slave owners because it meant that uh, they could help guarantee a workforce of healthy enslaved people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in this country, when medicine became, especially when you know uh, birth became moved to the hospital, birth workers, especially black granny midwives, were outlawed in this country until they pretty much disappeared. Um, in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And when we reclaim that history of birth work, the real owners of birth medicine, um, we're going back to the philosophy of treating people at birth um, and, and undergoing the birth process with respect um, at the center of their experience, not us as doctors or medical professional professionals, uh, you know, being the center of um, that experience, just even the way people give birth, right? Back in the day, they would give birth Mm -hmm. in an upright position. And in the hospital, you're not giving birth in an upright position because it's easier for the doctor to have access to your vagina. (laughs) They don't bend down and catch Mm -hmm. babies in the position that is most comfortable to the birther because it's not comfortable for them. Um, And so when we we look at just 
both the very physical aspects of how we practice midwifery um, with the patient being at the center of midwifery and, when and how, you know, we move around the person giving birth um, to their comfort. And then when we look at uh, the history of what midwifery was in this country um, and how it was outlawed and because it just had to do with uh, taking away the power of people um, and putting it in the hands of the white man, then we know that its roots, the spirit, is social justice. And when we re-embrace it, we're engaging in um, work that, again, levels the playing field, gives the power back to the people, um, and really um, reaffirms the person in labor um, and allows them to avoid the trauma. And by the way, um, midwives are associated with less C-sections, like significantly less. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the world is cared for by midwives. Um, 75% of births in the most developed nations are cared for by midwives. Um, whereas here in the country, we're at 10%. Yeah. yeah. And I'm friends with, uh, Marina Farrell out here who, uh, I think you might be familiar with, with the National Midwifery Association. Mm -hmm. And, uh, just getting to learn from her, how, you know, a lot of our undocumented uh, population in America, you know, they can't just go to the hospital, especially in my mm. city, they can't because the ice truck is parked right outside of the door. Um, and so I saw within two years, the change in birth rates where I was catching babies like, gosh, like every 15, 20 minutes. And the following year, as soon as those ice fans got parked, uh, the birth, I was maybe catching like four babies a night. So on a 12 hour shift. So I was like, where are where these are women going? going? And it was because we had um, birth workers in the community who were catching these babies at home and doing it the natural way and keeping those moms out of the hospitals. So, you know, there was the minus was that maybe the babies didn't get the early interventions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if there was a, a bad outcome or a high risk situation for baby wouldn't immediately go to the NICU where I was taking them. Yes. Um, but at the same time, moms were not being traumatized further by being afraid that upon discharge, I'm going to end up going to ICE detention and being deported with my newborn, which is a criminalization in this country that is happening, not just separating um babies from their moms at, at our borders like we've done. And now we have so many that are lost in the system being placed in foster homes away from their birth mothers, by the way, who have been shipped off. But also, you know, releasing these moms with newborns into ICE detention centers. And at least where I am, it's literally called the ice box because it's freezing cold there. And to expose, you know, days old babies to those kinds of conditions, postpartum mothers to those kind of conditions. It goes against everything that a birth worker, a mom, a human, a being. human being thinks is normal for another that's human right. being. Like if you have any shards of humanity in you, you will know that that's inappropriate. You will know that it's inappropriate to send a postpartum mother who has a blood sugar in the 500s or 600s. You would not l release her. You would give her that's medical right. attention and, and take care of her diabetes so that she can be healthy for this newborn that she just had. No, ICE is just going to let her out into the community and say, oh, maybe find a doctor if you can. So if you're a person of color, it is, I can tell you on the inside and Eva can tell you on the inside, it is completely different the way that um, women of color, people of color are treated in the medical system, especially our moms and babies. And if we're not doing that birth work and intervening in these kinds of ways, and you know, Ava, I don't want to downplay what you're doing, but it's like, you don't have to be a doctor to change that. Um, maybe become a hospital administrator, go into public health and, you know, present the numbers and present like the correct categories and identifiers of people and say, hey, this is what's happening to them. And from the inside, you know, manifest that change, create that change. Um, and, uh, you know, I guarantee that you'll be helping a lot of Muslims in this because the amount of research that's done on Muslims in, um, you know, what their birthing outcomes are. I think I've read one study so far. And even in that, it didn't separate. It was Arabs. Right. It was all Arabs that were counted, as if that Wait, is the majority. And that the is majority. not the majority no. of Muslims, guys. That's only 20% of all of Muslims. So in America, we need to open our minds and our brains and our hearts a little bit more um, and fix what's happening. So in my city, we've got, um, we're preparing for 300 pregnant Afghan refugees coming. So can you explain to the audience how not having the proper uh, resources set up to address these refugees um, and how states not covering 
the care of these refugees is going to, um, I guess, affect the financial, the financial state of our community, of our society. Why it makes sense, bottom line sense, to provide resources for birth and for early um, uh, neonatal intervention. Uh, why it's economically, not just a social justice issue, but also an economic issue. Oh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. In in New York City, thank goodness, we have the PCAP program, which allows for undocumented individuals to qualify and receive prenatal and postpartum services, I think up to six weeks, which is still total BS, but at least it's something. Um, you don't need to prove your, mm-hmm. you know, your um, document, your uh, immigration status. If we don't do this, and if we don't provide prenatal care, exactly what you talked about, we will be, and now birth work and birth is, is for the majority of people safe outside of the hospital. However, birth can be dangerous for people who are high risk. And if we are not going to allow access for people who are high risk um, to give birth in a hospital where they need, they need the services of the NICU, where they need the services of, you know, uh, medication and medical interventions, we're going to pay for it um, because we're going to end up with a bunch of sick people. And it's really expensive mm-hmm. to care for sick people. I mean, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but a NICU stay for one night costs thousands, tens of thousands of dollars, depending on how medically complex that baby is. Um, it doesn't mm-hmm. behoove us to do this. When we can just pay for prenatal care, which is super cheap, by the way, I mean, we're just listening with a Doppler and we're checking some blood work. That's it. You know, a midwife will go far and beyond mm-hmm. and care for the and, and hopefully, you know, doctors are also doing the same thing, care for the emotional and uh, social um, health, well-being of the of the person as well, their patient. But at the very minimum, right, it's not a cheap, it's not mm-hmm. expensive at all. It's super cheap. And it yeah. prevents so much sequelae, so many complications um, in the long run that are, with just one intervention, super expensive, and that can be. And then we're and then and then we're not even talking about the the psychological impact, right? Um, when we provide care for people in a transition, like refugee status or immigration status, um, and Birth in itself is a transition. And then you're talking about immigration, recent immigration and, and refugee um, status mm-hmm. as, as another transition. Um, if we're not caring for these people at these two at the crux of these two transitions, we're setting them up for extreme trauma um, that will manifest, as, manifest itself um, down the line, either immediately or years or even decades down the line, and that we're going to pay for Um if we really mm-hmm. would just want to talk about money, we're going to pay for, you know, in the lack of workforce, we're going to pay for in this, in the resources that these people are going to need. Um, if they can't keep jobs because they were traumatized. I mean, there's overwhelming evidence about how trauma and especially birth trauma now increasingly affects a person's ability to just be, to live, right. And to be a, a, um, a healthy yeah, function, function and to be a healthy, productive member of society. Not that that is always the goal, but you know, for those of us that are asking those questions about bottom line, then that is the goal. Let's be real. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it, it really doesn't cost a lot to care for um, people and to provide these resources. And it can really save us a lot of money. Um, but most importantly, like you said, Osma earlier, it's the humane thing to do. Like, it's just simply the right thing mm-hmm. to do. And as uh, the U.S. claims to be this beacon of human rights, which we know it's not. Right. Um yeah, but if yeah. we want to claim, if we want to make that claim, then we really need to put our money where our mouth is, and this is a very easy way yeah, to do it. Yeah, absolutely. There was so much outrage when there was those pictures of the border patrol on horses whipping um, Haitian refugees, and you know we saw pictures of men, but guys, oh, there yeah. were women and there too, and, and there were pregnant women, women and there oh, were yeah. children. Yeah, they were getting whipped as well. So there was not enough no. outrage. There was hours worth of outrage that I witnessed and then there was silence and so if you if refugees outrage you that much maybe don't create them in the first place because the same country that is oh donating so much money to the refugee crisis and giving so much money to refugees and letting refugees into our country we had a large hand in creating them believe it or not so you know if a bunch of Afghans are coming in that ticks you off 
well, maybe don't create the refugees in the first place. But that, as Zeba would say, is a different podcast. <laughs> oh, um, we can go so, on for that. And that's totally related to birth work. Yeah, too, we could go on. Still. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, I think it's really important. I'm so grateful. We're, Zeba and I are both so grateful that you came on and gave the Afro-Latina perspective because, you know, we've had birth workers on here before. Christina Friedlander, a friend of yours, came on before. And just, I mean, such intelligent intelligent emotionally intelligent like smart smart conversation that she had about the history of birth work and how it is social justice and it it is important to address the racial disparities that happen in our medical community i think it's super super important to have the actual descendant of the origins if that makes sense like an actual descendant of a representative of the communities being most effective uh, I affected. I think that that's really important because even my community, you know, even if you are an immigrant South Asian, you know, you're going to be treated yeah. better um, than other communities when you're birthing. I'm not going to dispel or deny that anybody of South Asian descent or anybody who looks like me has not had birth trauma. I'm sure you're still a person of color. Absolutely. You've had some, but I don't think it's comparable. And I don't think generationally that's it's comparable. Right. This has been happening for generations right. in this country. And so that's, it's not uh, oppression Olympics. Right. Okay. I promise. That's not Absolutely. what we're talking about. Um, but there is a long standing ill that has happened and we need to fix it again, because a lot of it is happening directly to our Muslim brothers and sisters who also really matter. And we need to start looking um, and seeing where we can fix things because some of us have that power to do that. Absolutely. And because it's translating to deaths. (laughs) It's translating to to women in this country, I mean, in New York City, black women being at eight times higher rate of dying post-childbirth. So it's not just because, you know, Mm -hmm. because it is oppression, but because it's it's translating to actual lives and actual people dying. Yeah. We're losing mom sisters here. So, you know, that's our community. So Zeba, as you know, yes. had to run away um, and get those shots done for her children. She sends oh, her apologies. Absolutely. But I am going to try to do justice to our favorite, the rapid fire. And I know you've been practicing. <laughs> I, I didn't practice, cheating. though. You know what? I have to be honest. I only know that <laughs> one it? question. I, everything else, I was like, I forgot what they asked. They asked something about if you could go back in history. But I'm going to really try to be true to the rapid fire and just not practice. So I promise you, I haven't even practiced. Okay, I appreciate it. <laughs> Okay, perfect. So this is first thing that pops in your head. And I'm going to be really kind because you told me that you were thinking about this. So what book are you reading now? Uh, I haven't started reading a book yet. <laughs> I'm still on my podcast. Oh, girl. <laughs> we got to get you into no, I, um, our fireside. Yeah. I mean, um, the most recent book I read, which is which wasn't that long ago, it was just a few weeks ago, Working Cures. Um, and it is about um, health in, um, in plantations in the South. And um, there's a few chapters about midwives and mentioned about midwives, which is why I like it. But I picked it up at the Whitney Museum when my husband and I did a little baby moon. Um, and it really just talks about the the history and the um, the legacy behind how the, the, the doctors on plantations, the enslaved people, and, and the wisdom oh. that they brought, and how you know white slave owners um, used that medicine and then took that medicine and, yeah, and took to credit. Mm-hmm. Working cures. Okay, yeah. we're gonna put that in our show notes. Next question is, where is your happy place? Ooh, I want to say the kitchen. Um, I enjoy <gasps> cooking. I love food. I do. I don't really like cleaning up. Although when I've got, you know, a good podcast going, I don't mind the dishes too much. And plus I have a dishwasher. I just hand wash a bit of dishes. But yeah, my happy place is cooking. I, I, I like good food. Yeah, well, you're very different than Zeba because that's one thing we agree on is that neither of us <laughs> enjoys cooking. We do it because we have to oh and like we'll get arrested for not feeding the children. What? So. <laughs> you know, the law, CPS, all that kind oh of stuff. So. All right. Who or what was your biggest teacher? Who or what was my biggest teacher? I mean, my kids, we talked about this, right? They teach yeah, me oh, every yeah, you did day. They Oh, I'm learning. I'm learning a lot. (laughs) And I'm getting a taste of my own medicine. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'm turning into my mom and dad. That's what I've learned. (laughs) Um, 
Oh, here's one because that was kind of like you already sort of answered that in the beginning. I'm going to give you one more. I know we're over time and I don't care. <laughs> what qualities do you admire about your parents? Oh, you my did goodness. talk a lot about that. Yes. And, you know, we would love to hear more. My father's resilience, um, what he's been through is ridiculous. He became a doctor at 50 years old. So, I mean, I don't know wow. many people who could do that. And he, this, he was a farmer, a very poor farmer starting off. And he just never gave up on his goal to become a doctor. And he did it 50 years old. So his resilience is uh, admirable. I really don't know anyone more resilient than him. And my mom's unconditional love. I mean, everyone feels like their mom is like that. But geez, my mom, I'm like... I could do anything. You'd still love me. Like, and it wouldn't Aww. even diminish a little bit. <laughs> so, so uh, those are two things that I aspire to, um, you know, incorporate in how I parent. I feel like those are incredible lessons for all of us from both of your parents and to both of your parents. Thank you on behalf of Momming Well Muslim <laughs> for being such exemplary models for you. And thank you for coming on and, you know, sharing with us your knowledge, your background in public health. I just, you know, we cannot talk enough about this topic and about the racial uh, inequities in this country. And I know that some people, what they're hearing is like straight criticism. Mm. But again, going back to the very beginning of what you said, if we're not asking questions about, am I doing enough or can I do better, then we're not being humble. Um, And it is a, a a lifelong process, humility, stay humble and keep figuring out how we can do better. It's not you know, it's not something to get defensive about. No. It's not something to get offended about. Um, we we have to ask those questions because even in our deen, you know, in Islam, we have to keep striving yes. to get better because we're not promised anything. Absolutely. By Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, except that he is that, that, and that yes. there will be an accounting, an accounting. day. So Absolutely. we want to make sure... That's what I, when I, when I became a midwife, that's the one thing that I, you know, and I reflected on this, the the biggest feeling I had outside of everything else was accountability. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. you said you wanted to do this and you, you gave yourself the reasons why now it's the time to do the work and remember that you're accountable along you, Allah, you're accountable to the people who supported you in this and you're accountable Mm -hmm. to the communities that you said you started this to and and may Allah keep us um, with the knowledge and with the with the uh foresight of being accountable so we do the right thing thank you so much again jazakallah khair for your time and assalamualaikum everyone thank you so much for having me Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzma on Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Momming While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.